Hi, I'm Lauren. I'm Tia. And I'm Sabrina. And this is the Journey to Transformation. Welcome! Yay, thanks for joining us. So today we're joined by Sabrina Joy Stevens, an accomplished movement builder, storyteller and strategist. And I've also seen you described as an occasional troublemaker and we very much welcome troublemakers on this show. And we also came across Sabrina's consultancy, Savvy Joy Creative Solutions, where Sabrina is helping to cultivate brave and joyful strategic communications and campaigns for justice. So thank you so much for joining us, Sabrina. We have a lot we want to dive into. So let's start with your journey. Tell us how did you get here? What's your starting point? Go for it. Yeah. So, oh gosh, I can't even believe it every time I have to say this, but um, I'm coming up on 21 years now since my political mm. awakening. And, you know, I don't know if it's a descent or ascent some days, it feels like <laughs> into activism and all that entails. So my dad is a 9-11 survivor. And so in my whole, like, why would anybody want to do this kind of discovery and prayer and all that stuff? Discover, oh, because this country has committed some serious human rights abuses and have basically just been furthering a lot of conflict in the world. And so that was how I became then a human rights activist and got into anti-war mobilizations. I was a little troublemaker on my school paper. My sister and I both actually have a twin. So we were both basically holding down the op-ed page. It's just all anti-war all the time. You know, I was that kid who like read about the Tinker v. Bell Supreme Court case in the United States and was like, oh, well now I'm definitely going to have a little black arm band movement in my school and all that kind of stuff. And so fast forward through college. And by then I'd also picked up anti-sweatshop campaign and, um, you know, so thinking about workers' rights as well as other human rights abuses, thinking about ending the prison industrial complex. Like I was really doing everything I could think of. Very busy girl. And so at some point I, I realized everything in my story was anti, anti, anti. And so that kind of started me in this process of recognizing that I have a natural heart to teach. Me thinking like, oh, maybe education is going to be my activism instead of me going to protests all the time to do the day in, day out work of shaping the next generation of thinkers, of voters. And so, of course, me trying to do that in an underfunded, struggling, over-tested public school, I, again, got into trouble. <laughs> and so was pushed out of that, then became a grassroots organizer with the community to try to stop the attacks that were going on in the school, that privatization and takeovers and things like that that were going on. Also being retaliated against for actually trying to teach instead of test kids was also what pushed me into the labor movement because I was like, oh, right, we still need unions because it turns out that this is not a thing of the past. There are still bad bosses who will literally try to stop you from doing your job to this long list now of causes. I'm now adding labor advocacy and organizing. Then I had a little pause where I was working in the labor movement. I was running an organization doing media campaigning around education justice. And then I had a baby and was kind of chilling out for a second, literally a second. And then Trump was installed in the White House. And so that was like, oh, gender justice, let's go. And so that became what I was really focusing a lot of my time on as well as civil rights, recognizing then that we were not going to be able to make any kind of progress if we did not get the problem in the White House on down to our local state houses and city council solved. And so then moved to really focus most of my attention on mobilizing Black voters, making sure that we were able to actually have some semblance of a free and fair election or in the 2020 election cycle. So after doing all of that in the midst of a pandemic, rampant disinformation, all of my work has been helping people rethink misperceptions that were causing them to make bad policy choices, whether it's, you know, them lying to us about the presence of WMDs in Iraq or, you know, lying to people about whether or not they should get vaccinated or wear a mask in COVID and everything in between. Everything has always been this through line of like, there are people lying to us so that we 
are misled into making bad decisions. And so as a communicator, as a teacher, as someone who's kind of just naturally really disposed to setting the record straight, we shouldn't be misled into making choices that are against our best interests. Realizing though that through the course of all in grassroots, national organizations, international coalitions, wherever I was showing up, there were these common threads of communications problems that we were consistently getting wrong that were undermining the quality and the efficacy of our own work. And also just mindset issues that were really stopping people from being able to be as effective as possible. And so rather than trying to continually fight that same fight in multiple different organizations and multiple different movement formations, I was like, I'm going to go into practice for myself and be able to do the things that I do best with lots and lots of different types of people, individuals, as well as organizations, firms, whoever is really interested in the cause of justice, whoever is like, I'm surrounded by lies and I have no idea what's going on, help. Basically just giving myself the freedom to be able to show up where I can do some good to help people just do those little mindset shifts and those communication shifts that are really needed for us to get out of our own way on the path to justice. For me, there's so much that we've already built, that we've already accomplished, that we've already gotten right, but there are some really fundamental things we're getting wrong. And if we can stop making some of those same mistakes, then we can actually finally push this tipping point in the direction that we want things to go. And so rather than trying to fight it out each little organization every time, I figured, let me give myself space to spread ideas, mindset shifts, communications hacks, all the things that we need just to be able to do good work better with more people. And again, more joyfully, more sustainably. The other thing that happens when you don't have the mindset and the mouth right is that people burn out. There's unnecessary conflict. All the things that I all know very well on this show, both you know, as hosts and as listeners, those recurring cycles of conflict and things that we constantly see in organizations where people are working for the greater good. There's a lot of stuff that we can get out of our own way. And so that's really what I try to help create space for people to do as I work with my clients, with movement partners, whoever I'm called to that day. <laughs> it sounds like what you're saying, if there's something shitty that's going on, you're going to jump in there with a smile. <laughs> yeah, basically. basically. <laughs> that is like the most succinct ever I love it. All right, well, we're really into making like t-shirts and stuff. So we'll make you one that says that. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I will wear it with pride. <laughs> I want to jump into... Well, actually, I'm somewhat distracted by your bookcase. I color coded my bookshelf and people were in an uproar because they were like, <laughs> I've got a very good friend who said, I don't understand how you find anything if it's color coded. And I was like, I don't really care. I, I'll figure out where it is. I just like the way it looks. So right. because for me, I'm very visual. Like I, I know I'm like, wait, I know the binding of that book is like this red. Thing. So like for me, it just works functionally. But also I just love to be able to just see pretty things when I'm going about my business. That's one of the things that keeps them smiling face when I'm mucking through the shit, right? <laughs> the point of the contention point is that I've got a couple of books that are the same, but different editions or different colors so they end up being separated from each other sometimes but i take a position i go through it all my heart I want to talk about one of the things that you train people on which is ethical storytelling what is that tell me everything tell us everything because the yeah. second we saw it, well certainly for me i was like i'm not entirely sure what that means except i also totally know what that means so yes help <laughs> Yes, definitely. So I think in a nutshell, it's really storytelling that is mutually beneficial for everybody involved, right? So it is satisfying and freeing for the storyteller. It is enlightening for the people who are hearing or reading that story. It helps us get a better understanding of something.
everything we need to know so we can, again, make better decisions. Our whole existence is determined moment to moment by the choices we're making. And so if we can hear things that help us make better decisions, we can live better lives. And so when we think about ethical storytelling, especially as advocates, when I'm thinking about storytelling, I'm not a marketer. I'm not somebody who's telling stories just to be telling stories. I think that's great. It has its place. But for those of us who are trying to tell stories to drive an action forward of some kind, to be able to create some kind of change in the world, the fundamental thing that we can't do is replicate the very harms that we're trying to eradicate. Because if we're doing that, then we're literally working against ourselves. Again, all about getting out of our own way on the path to freedom. You know, if we're treating each other with respect, if we're being really careful, making sure that everybody is consenting to every aspect of what we're doing, that everybody is feeling safe, that they're given the tools, the advanced preparation in some cases, compensation where appropriate. The nonprofit sector is pretty notorious. And I think part of it's a scarcity mindset from being underfunded or feeling like we don't have enough. But we really want to make sure that people aren't in a position where they're putting themselves in some kind of risk, especially in the current political climate, the current digital climate. You know, there's so many different things that can potentially offer risks that people face when they're telling their stories on the issues that really most need storytelling. Because the other thing, of course, is like we're not talking about necessarily just telling bedtime stories. We are not talking about the little engine that could, right? Sometimes we're talking about stories about sexual assault or abortion or, you know, whatever the issues are that we're facing that we have to help people understand better so that we make better policy choices and better cultural choices for that matter. And so really it's about being mindful that we're not recreating the very dynamics we're trying to disrupt as we go about trying to help people understand what's really going on on an issue. That's really helped to understand how you go about doing ethical storytelling. And as Tia said at the beginning, it's something you think you know about, but when you go into detail, you're like, it's actually about getting out of the way, which is something that is really echoing with with everything you're saying. I'm curious, how do you identify that you are doing harm? Maybe you've collected a story and you're retelling it again and again. How do you know it's ethical or you are actually reinforcing systems of oppression? Well, I think the first thing is just to check in with whoever is most directly impacted. I want to say too, that when we talk about storytelling, I first want to decenter the idea that we always need to be talking about individual one-on-one types of stories. A lot of what I help people do too is bigger picture narrative building. So thinking about how are we understanding or what meaning are we making of what's happening in society because just fundamentally human beings we are storytelling creatures our brains are just we project a story onto something even if there is no relationship between the things that's literally how our dreams come to be you're describing this podcast (laughs) yeah (laughs) but like yeah like your neurons are just firing and because our brains naturally work to make meaning we create a story around it and then we wake up and we're like wait that was so weird what happened you know yeah so we're constantly making (laughs) (laughs) i love it but so yeah, we're constantly making up stories anyway. And so if we're not doing that well, then people are going to get confused, come to problematic conclusions, all sorts of stuff, right? So if we're thinking about how do we identify if we've done harm, I think part of it is just checking in with, does this still feel right? I think as much as possible, we either have to prepare people for, say, you know, if they're going to have their story told, say, in like a newspaper or, you know, some sort of big media platform organization, that they may have less control over how the story comes out when it is 
And so helping people make those choices up front, you know, am I really down for this to potentially reoccur? You know, the story that I may be really into telling this point in my life, do I really want this continually recurring, coming back to me 10, 20, whatever years from now? And so helping people make some decisions in advance is a way of avoiding harm. But one way you can definitely tell if you've started to inflict some is that people start to feel like this is putting me at risk. If people are starting to get harassment or if they're just not getting the benefit from it that they deserve as the person who is telling the story or who had the experience Mm. that is relevant in that moment. I think something that is also a really problematic dynamic I see a lot in the nonprofit space is paid nonprofit staffers collecting stories from people who are not compensated in any way, whose work is not recognized in the way that it should, so that it's at least setting them up through other economic value. So if you're having people tell their stories over and over again, but you never give them any kind of credit, Mm. or if you never spell that out in a way that they can maybe put on a resume so that it could actually be building economic power and capacity for them over time. We have this horrible habit of just treating everything as very disposable. And so if we're thinking about it as though it's just, oh, this person tells their story and then we just, you know, toss it out wherever. We don't think about like, should they be getting some sort of rights to it? Should they have gotten some sort of compensation? Should there be licensing considered around this so that they can continue to accrue value over it as it's still adding value to campaigns or still adding value to the public consciousness? And so thinking about these kinds of things, I think is really important because again, we don't want to put people in a position where they're bearing their souls in some cases. They're really putting themselves out in a position of vulnerability, if nothing else, and then potentially safety risks as we look at the state of the world today. We want to make sure that they're not doing all that just to be a sob story on a postcard that's given to donors at the end of the year, right? That there's something more happening in that exchange beyond just we extract this from you. We get paid because we are the professional whatevers while you're continuing to deal with whatever the problem is, right? There's so much that goes into it, but just a little bit of that sense of checking in. Does this still feel right for everybody? Is it still adding value to everybody who's involved? So much of that rings true, right? And I've often said to clients, you're making money off the backs of people's stories. So you need to be responsible with that. You are actively fundraising using this sad baby's face, you know, in all of your annual reports and all of these things you submit to donors as evidence of your good and righteous work. But what's the toll? Right. One of the projects that we worked on, and this is in the public space, so I think they'd be very happy for us to say it. We did an evaluation with Amnesty International UK on their human rights defender And one of the things we said was, these are human rights defenders. They are here. They have this title because horrible, shitty things are happening to them and the people around them. And they're trying to resist that, fight it. They're trying to bring awareness to it. But in constantly bringing evaluators into that space to have conversations with them, we have to be really sensitive about Lauren and I's placement in that and how we're asking people to tell their stories. And I think as an organization, we're very, very sensitive to it, very sensitive to it. I have to say, I give them credit for that and many other things that they did as part of that project and part of our engagement. But one of our recommendations is to think about different ways for human rights defenders to tell their stories because they're not telling their stories just to Amnesty International. They're telling it to a bunch of different organizations and all of that compounding residual ickiness and pain and sadness and trauma, that's sparking it every single time or could potentially be sparking it. One of the recommendations that we made is based off something that I'd seen in Cambodia where they used testimony therapy as a way Mm -hmm. for people's story to be told without them necessarily necessarily having to be the one who's telling that story. How do you deal with power dynamics? 
Because mm. if I, as the great and the good organization, come to my sweet and benevolent beneficiaries, I'm using that term. Yes. <laughs> all the air quotes yeah, for the people the who can't see. If you're listening. <laughs> there are many rounds of air quotes. We are bunnies all over. <laughs> How do you know that when you're asking, you're not getting an answer, you're not getting a yes because of fear of retaliation or negative repercussions or consequences if you say no? How do you manage that space? Yes. First of all, I think part of it starts before we even ask anybody for their story. And we need to, one, be really clear, is what we're asking them to contribute to going to be worth their while? Do we have a plausible enough purpose in doing this that it's going to create some sort of positive change? Can be worth it for them to do it at all? The other thing we want to do before we even ask anybody for their story is to think through ways to tell the story or ways to think about the story that are not necessarily going to constantly be mining for the most trauma. There's a great piece about this. I want to say in a nonprofit quarterly, you know, journal one of those type of magazines, I'll share it with y'all after, where this ED of an organization, he founded his organization in the wake of being shot. And so violence prevention, working with young men of color to prevent similar situations like the ones he went through decades ago. And so he does great peace, you know, why must I relive my deepest trauma in order to fund my organization? And so I think part of that surfaces a lot of these themes of this whole idea, like you can talk about being a victim of violence or surviving violence for that matter, without necessarily going into the gore details of it. Sometimes people get really into, you know, sometimes referred to as trauma porn, where it's like, give us the gory details of what happened to you in that conflict zone. Tell all the horrible things. Be the sad child. And, you know, and first of all, like over time, that actually doesn't even work. Part of the reason why people struggle to maintain donor bases and things like that is because people get burnt out over that. In addition to traumatizing your storyteller, you're also creating compassion fatigue in your audience. So over time, all of that is unsustainable on both ends. Diminishing and returns. Very diminishing returns. And so rather than dragging somebody through that trauma minefield in order to tell the most pathos inducing, like, oh, look how terrible, you know, like, sorry, I did not get all the Southern British when I was saying that. But instead of thinking that we have to make everything as horrible as possible to get people to act, it's a huge myth that that's even an effective way to mobilize action. We think about instead, what are ways that we can give people enough information about the problem that they're motivated to solve it, but then show people what they can do about it. That's actually a more sustainable path toward sustainably motivating people to take action if they actually believe they can make a difference. And in the process of telling that story, instead of it being all about, let's get all the worst details about this to make it seem as horrible as possible, which usually has the effect of shutting people down. They're like, oh, this is a terrible problem. I can't do anything to fix. So I'm going to go watch cake shows on Netflix because it doesn't make me feel sad like this does. Instead of putting people in that position, we can set people up to see there's this horrible thing going on. And you don't have to explain to people what it feels like to have let it go in and out of you in order to understand like, oh, shootings are bad. We're already clear on that. You don't have to go into the whole details of sexual assault or whatever else to be like, oh yeah, this is bad. Right. And then you show people how they can solve it. That's a story that not only empowers the storyteller, it empowers the listener. It empowers the person taking in that story so that they're actually motivated to then take whatever call to action you present to them after you told that story. And so I think that's a more 
more sustainable, kinder, less trauma-inducing way to approach storytelling that actually gets us better returns in the long run anyway. There was a really great campaign a few years ago that was run by Plan International UK. Full disclosure, I was working there at the time. Mm-hmm. This was one thing where I was very, very impressed. It was part of that pivot around this trauma porn, poverty porn, and they started moving their campaigns to say, this girl, this woman is a survivor and this is what they're doing. So as opposed to the victim narrative, it was the survivor narrative. And it was about all the things that they were doing and how they overcame and were flourishing. And I remember looking at some of the ads that they put out and just thinking, wow, okay, everyone, we've done something right. Well done, everybody. Yeah, I actually just saw another one that I thought was good. I was watching YouTube and an ad came up. If you're a person who advertises your nonprofit on YouTube, I'm your audience. So I get all of those. And I can't remember which organization it was, which is probably for the best anyway. But normally an organization you would associate with Sarah McLaughlin singing in the background, the saddest puppies, the saddest children. Angel saddest playing. <laughs> yes, everyone is covered in flies and it is terrible. That kind of commercial. They had actually done this really joyful commercial. It was set in the same types of location that they'd normally kind of been like, look how bleak. And they were pulling out the colors, right? They were actually pulling out the feeling of the sunshine in the place. And so it was this energy of like, oh, I like this. I want to support these people. It was really moving to me because I was like, good, somebody has told them. You don't have to have the sobbing child. You don't have to have the maudlin music. You can actually show people, yeah, like here's the progress you can be part of. People want to join a winning team. That's a narrative that works. Everybody wants to be a part of a winning team. Everyone wants to think of themselves as a hero or as at least as a hero waiting. And so that's a narrative. Again, thinking about storytelling beyond just like, look at this person. See how bad their life is, right? We can do different narratives. And so it was good to see that that's starting to take root in more organizations. It's almost in some ways a small attempt to decolonizing the model, right? Because that was very much our like, oh, look at them over there. They're so sad. Let's help them. As opposed to like, these people are thriving. Let's all be thriving together. What was the trigger for that? Like with plan and with organizations that are moving towards ethical storytelling. What's the switch that made them change? I do think it was in this period because I remember going to a panel at the Overseas Development Institute, ODI, and it had all of these communications and marketing people together who basically were just coming together to agree that it was a bit gross that we were doing this babies with flies model and all this stuff. And it was just kind of touching back on the perspective of the viewer was almost dehumanizing people Mm -hmm. while trying to humanize people almost. I don't know that this was necessarily the narrative that was coming out at the time, but it reminded me a little bit of Enos hot and taught of bringing human zoo and I think to their credit as a bunch of mostly white people I was like whoa this is cool good for you I'm really proud of you white people you did a good job I think it was part of this whole kind of realization that actually probably there were some metrics that they have of this like diminishing returns piece I think part of it is that the social narrative was changing and we were all like this is just a bit icky now and it just feels awkward I think that's probably part of it and I think probably when they did their user testing from the like PR agency or whatever that they got to come in and help them they said you know maybe let's switch it up and try for something that's a bit more fresh and different that differentiates plan as an organization I mean I'm guessing that these are the conversations that they had differentiates them from all of the other international non-governmental organizations that are operating in the space. And I do think over time that that was very different because we did an evaluation fairly recently where somebody said, 
the member of staff was like, I'm sick of seeing our commercials on YouTube and on TV because they're old, they're outdated. It's the same like babies covered in fly stuff and it's very offensive. And I was like, yeah, I still see that commercials out. And I'm like, how is this happening? Come on, people. No, it's true. There's still definitely some, but I think the other thing too that I feel like I, I, I'm hoping more people are awakening to is just the fact that pity is not powerful. It's not an empowering emotion when you're experiencing someone else's pity and it's not empowering for the person who is feeling pity for someone else because if you're feeling pity as opposed to empathy, it's like, boom, look at you down in that hole. That looks terrible. Maybe I will toss you a sandwich as opposed to feeling like, oh, I can be part of ending holes. You know, I can stop people from having to fall down here in the first place. And so the more we ground people in empathy of just like, yeah, look how much better it is is when we're all doing better. That is a better selling point than like, isn't it terrible? Wouldn't you want to pay money to feel less guilty? Because after a certain point, people are like, I don't feel guilty anymore because I'm skipping ad. Yeah, I switch over to something else on TV. People just become desensitized to it. So I think something you mentioned before was that everyone's kind of on this journey to freedom. And it'd be good to talk a little bit about co-liberation. You mentioned this idea of choosing freedom in your consultancy work. What does that actually mean? How, how do you choose freedom? Obviously, this could be a very huge topic. <laughs> but so I'll offer a couple of quick definitions that I work off of when I'm talking to people about freedom and privilege. And then I'll talk about why. So when I talk about freedom, what I mean is being your authentic self in harmony with all living things, other people, you know, the rest of creation, as well as the experience of safety that only peace and justice can truly offer. So contrast that with what privilege is. And it's really a way of weaponizing a certain group of people to uphold a system. To me, if I think about privilege, it's like an addictive substitute for freedom that tricks people or coerces them into upholding systems of injustice that they would be better off letting crumble. And so when we start to think about, wait, what does it mean to really truly exist in a state of freedom? Not how do we close gaps between certain groups of people? Because newsflash, even the people who are so, quote unquote, at the top of this hierarchy that we live under right now, socioeconomically, et cetera, they're struggling too in many ways. They're emotionally, I mean, some of the most miserable people I've ever seen, right? And so there's really no winning this kind of rigged game. There's only degrees of losing. And so think about liberation as feeling safe, as in not just a false sense of security that if I call the cops, they might come and do something, but the real sense of safety of like, I'm living in harmony with everyone around me. They're living in harmony with me. And so I'm not fearful all the time because when people are recognizing when we're living in harmony together, that we're all flourishing together, that all of our well-being is bound up in each other, then we're actually experiencing genuine freedom. And so there are moments for all of us where we're living in that state in a moment, but then collectively may not be experiencing that. And so part of what we're thinking about is how do we anchor what it is like in our day-to-day decision-making so that we continue to build up to that collectively. I think something that we do that makes it harder for us to free ourselves and free other people is we think that if we don't do all of it, then none of it can be possible, right? We tell these stories, oh, you know, none of us can be free until all of us are free, which is like true in a sense. There is truth in that. But this idea that freedom only comes at some end state that we are so far from. Only free people can free people. So if we're thinking that free is this complex, you know, abstract thing, and then we're saying we're working towards it, we're trapped by that illusion. And then we're also not able to then bring people along or make it practical for ourselves. What does it mean then to choose freedom moment to moment? And so 
I think it's really about recognizing, again, that our liberation is bound up in each other, recognizing that it's not about, again, that pity model of, oh, look at you down in that hole, but recognizing like, oh, actually, if I am creating, for example, an economically just society, whether I'm a person who has more economic privilege or less, I'm better off in an economically just society because if the people who are going to be my customers, let's say I'm a big business owner, right? The people who are going to be my customers have money in their pockets. That's more clients for me, right? That's more customers for me. Recognizing that whatever it is that we're doing together is going to make all of us better off and seeing how we can create mutually satisfying ways to live with each other. That's really when we're starting to get towards freedom as opposed to being like, oh, let's, you know, close the wage gap between white men and other groups of subgroups of women, you know, say, so that's a conversation right now in the United States. And it's like, well, most white men in this country are also seriously economically exploited. I don't want equality with other exploited people. I want us all to be doing better. And so the more we think about co-liberation, the more we think about, again, we all do better when we all do better, then we start to actually move towards something that's going to be sustainable, that's actually going to motivate us to continue to keep getting out of bed every morning to work towards that, because we're actually seeing what we're building on as opposed to constantly playing whack-a-mole, with, you know, well, oh, we got to swap this injustice, tomorrow we're going to swap that one. This problem's happening over here, another problem. I feel like this whole sector, we're very much a group of problem studies makers. <laughs> and all we do is kind of problem, problem, problem. Let's keep back in every mold. Instead of thinking, what are we working towards? Whatever comes up as an obstacle in that path, I'm going to swat it down, but I'm going to keep going towards where I'm trying to go as opposed to like, oh, I have to sit here and write every a little wrong as opposed to no in the course of me actually building something better i'm going to naturally displace a lot of the bad stuff you've already made me feel incredibly hopeful i feel like choosing freedom and liberation is actually something that i can practice today and actually become much more attuned to this work when you said people are playing whack-a-mole with the problems me and tia laughed hard at that because we recognize it in our clients every day but i've really come away thinking this is something i can can actually feasibly do and a much more joyful approach but how do you teach that then when clients come to you how do you how do you teach them to become more attuned to this well i think you know part of it is just helping people use what they already know so many of us know so much we know so much research we know so many terms we know so much about the problems here are policies we could literally just dust off of shelves policy solutions for every single problem we've got. If we could marshal the political will to move resources where they need to go, we've got all the resources we need to solve poverty, whatever the issue is, right? We can get that done. There is enough money in the world. There's enough stuff in the world. Figure that stuff out. And the thing that really stops us again is thinking that it's got to be this whole perfect project and it has to meet every definition of everything I've ever learned in every university class, leftist circle, every single thing, as opposed to taking moments and thinking, okay, wait a minute, what are actual imprints of, like, what are characteristics of living in a free or a just state, right? What does justice look like? What are these patterns of injustice? And then how do I moment to moment continually choose? And so I do actually, most of the time when I do this type of work, it's in the context of these workshops that I host from every now and again, or sometimes people will bring me to their organization or their convening and we'll do usually like 90 minute to two hour workshop. I'm really just downloading with people. Here's what you're looking for when you're thinking about freedom. Is your status 
relative or is it absolute, right? Are you absolutely have a right to do certain things or are rights resources being rationed according to where people fall in a hierarchy? So I give people basically little imprints of like, these are the things to look for when you're making decisions. You know, another sort of contrast to look at is that consent to coercion dynamic. So whether I'm thinking about, you know, okay, my son is doing something that I don't like in our house. I can go the coercive route, like I'm the grown up and you do it this way because what I say goes, or and think about a more consent and building up model. Let me use this as a teaching moment. Let's figure out a solution that works for both of us. In that moment, I've chosen freedom because instead of socializing him to acquiesce to powers that be, or more likely socializing him to become the powers that be later on in life, instead I'm modeling for him, here's how people have a conflict and come to a mutually satisfying solution. And then that's setting a pattern for him over his life that he can look for and replicate in other interaction. And so every moment I'm thinking about, I'm making that vote. One of my metaphors I speak in a lot is referendum. So I think about I'm voting for the kind of life I wanna feel right now, as well as what's gonna be in the future every time I'm making a choice. And so I wanna be really mindful about those choices. Something else that comes up in the context of these kinds of workshops then is how do we actually simplify our lives? How do we approach things mindfully enough that we can actually see those opportunities? Because for most of us, information is coming at us constantly and we're not really in any kind of control over it. Other people's ideas and opinions, we're doing too much because we think we have to do all the things under the sun in order to get any worthwhile done. And so in the course of all that, we're constantly having to make all these decisions and we're not being really thoughtful with them. So a lot of decisions are being made for us. We're defaulting to the mental model we got in childhood, which for most of us were very coercive and problematic. We're defaulting to whatever the algorithms says us when we're on social media, or even now, if you're watching your news on places like YouTube, an algorithm is deciding what you're seeing, not what is actually important for you to see. And so if you're not mindful about how you approach your life, actually giving yourself space to make good choices, then you're not going to be in a position to really do that. And so especially when I think about my nonprofit clients who I work with, I'm basically one kind of giving them permission to be like, you're doing too much. And so here's how you can figure out actually worth investing your time in so that you can take some of that off your plate and be doing better, more effective, more sustainable things over time. And again, giving yourself space. One, to actually just savor the freedom you have, like stopping and savoring. I'm a big believer in it. But also once you've actually done that, then you're giving yourself opportunities to continually choose, okay, now I'm going to vote in this situation, but I'm not feeling all crazy because I was fighting with my son before I got to work. Now I can go into this morning meeting and I have my full presence of mind to be able to suggest really good things to my campaign team or to make good communication suggestions to my policy person so that they can be doing better work. So all of that ripples out. I think sometimes we think our lives are separate from our work and that's not true. Life is all the whole thing. Work is a little part of that. The more we're thinking about, wait, actually my activism is not just when I show up at a protest or when I take this movement job. My activism is being a peaceful parent and being a whole, healing, healthy, thriving Black woman and all of these other things that go in making life so that you actually live the thing you're trying to create. When I grow up, I hope to be like you. <laughs> <laughs> I feel, I mean, so much of what you're saying is really inspirational. I'm like, yes, yes, yes. I just feel this tension of being a queer woman of color sitting in the spaces that I'm sitting in and really feeling good about coercing people to do what I want. <laughs> it's like, it's my turn to coerce. I'm like, yeah, okay, well, I'm a consultant. You've brought me in. Who cares why you've brought me in? Even if I'm just that token brown lady, fine. But you've paid me to tell you what to do. I'm going to tell you what to do. The good part of me is like, no, bring people along on the journey. 
the naughtier part of me is just like, hmm, now it's time. I'm coming up to you now. Like, it's my turn. <laughs> and so I feel that kind of tension of, oh, yes. I know where I should be. And I, my aspirations are closer to me some days than they are in other days. But I feel like I'm, I'm moving more towards that aspirational self as I hear you speaking. I may just need to keep playing this okay. over and over again. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. I feel like for a long time kind of struggled in that tension. I feel like so much of the work that I was doing and, and just seeing those cycles of movement squabbles, especially, I think sometimes we've heard it was like circular firing squads or whatever the thing is, right? Whether it's an organization, you know, coalitions happens in all those spaces. And I feel like there's just this moment where I kept seeing those recurring patterns and just seeing how exhausting they are. Yeah. And this is the reason, again, why I'm like, privilege is a scam. Nobody is winning in this situation because it's exhausting, whether you're the person who was having to struggle against oppression or you were the person who has to exert the force to continue to perpetuate oppression. All of that is work. And I'm like, I'm a working mom in a pandemic. I'm not trying to do anything. And so for me, trying to constantly force my rightness on other people as a building relationships where we trust each other enough to be able to defer some decisions to others. To me, like it is so much more satisfying. It is so much more energizing and fruitful and just peaceful to figure out what is the mutually satisfying. Like I'm always, when I'm in any interaction, I'm thinking about how do we make a mutually satisfying outcome to this? Because that is so much better than trying to like, I'm going to will myself to be the winner of this conversation like that is that's work i'm, I'm like i'm set a point where no. i'm just like no i'm busy i'm busy that day and also i'm trying to not be busy. like that's my real aspiration right it's like, I'm, trying have, I'm trying to cross things off my to-do list yeah. i'm trying to have more back time and more hanging out with my people time i am not trying to do oh now we gotta have another conversation because that meeting went terribly and so now we gotta have a circle about that i don't want it I'm reminded by what you're saying about a book that I read fairly recently that's called The New Human Rights. And it talks about that the center of inequality is the fallacy of scarcity in all mm -hmm. things. It's the myth of the zero sum that if yep. they have, that means I don't have. And it's this mm -hmm. kind of like thing that we've embedded in ourselves over time and generations yeah. that are ultimately the things that are perpetuating deep inequality on so many different yeah. levels. And I'm reminded a lot yes. of that as you were talking of like, oh, okay. Literally the two workshops that I do that center on this choosing freedom piece, literally that is one of the first things right out of the gate we talk about is that scarcity is the foundational myth of this society, especially as so much of my work centers on countering and disinformation too. That fundamental lie, that is the lie that if you buy into it, you are sunk because if you think that everything is zero sum. If you think that this is a dog eat dog world and either I'm the dog eating or the dog getting eaten first, I'm like, if that's what you think life is, why are you trying to do anything? So if you buy into that lie, then all of the other lies society tries to throw at you are going to make sense to you. Whereas if you're like, wait a minute, nope, we have more than enough for everyone to have the rights, the resources, the representation they deserve. And I talk about this stuff all the time, but there's basically three key manipulation track tactics all bad actors use to convince people to take actions against their best interests. Divide and conquer, mislead and misdirect, overwhelm and exhaust. Divide and conquer, you pit people against each other so they fight each other instead of fighting on just systems. Mislead and misdirect, you trick people into making bad decisions and upholding bad systems by lying to them. Or misleading, I should say, more carefully because people can also weaponize the truth in that situation. But then also the overwhelming exhaust. You can't fool all the people all the time. So you just get the ones who actually figured out what's going on. So overwhelmed, but they don't do anything. If you understand those fundamental things, that dynamic and recognize 
realize how all of those efforts serve that scarcity narrative. There's no foundation to divide and conquer if I understand there's more than everybody. I can't be misled into making these false choices about putting some people's rights ahead of others or depriving some people of resources and letting others hoard wealth. I'm not going to be tricked into that, misled and misdirected to do that if I first rejected that premise of scarcity. Same for the overwhelming exhaust. If I know there's more than enough for everybody, can't convince me that it's hopeless. This is why I have a smile on my face every single day, no matter what is happening in my life. Because I'm like, you know what? You will never convince me that with as many resources that we have, as many people, more people than ever, billions of people who are like, yes, I am down for the good cause. I am down to live a better life. You're never going to convince me that it's hopeless to go out and try to do something better in the world. And so if we continually anchor ourselves in the truth of abundance and the truth of sufficiency and help each other see that where we're getting sucked into the scarcity pitfall, then we can actually continually keep generating those mutually satisfying solutions and interactions that help us get closer to living in the free state all the time as opposed to just sometimes. I really love that. As you were describing those three things, I was having examples in my head of times when I've fallen into those traps and I've been like, I don't know what's happening. And and the sense of overwhelm, particularly the Trump regime. I mean, that was just bombarding with oh, yeah. chaos after. That entire administration, I lived the first like two and a half years in a state of perpetual clinical nausea. I would actually get on planes. I, I remember so clearly, I on a plane to go do a talk in Sweden. And as soon as I landed in Sweden, the nausea that had dogged me for literally months immediately disappeared. It was terrible. And that's part of how I like came to this. I continually live in the, this is terrible. And I have to correct every bad thing he's ever doing. It's like, it's so exhausting. And it doesn't actually help me get out of that. It just tires me out more. Yeah. Also because Sweden is fantastic. (laughs) Yeah. I I mean, I do think that there's a few things that you mentioned there. Uh, Perfection being the enemy of the good is, you know, some phrasing that I think about as you're you're speaking. And I think about how to get myself into a mindset that's more in, in an abundant space, in a space of abundance of humans, of resources. And I think maybe I just need a, I don't know, I might need to make you my ringtone just so I can <laughs> keep, keep... I feel like you got to figure it out. I'm just thinking actually on these like content things because I'm mad at social media right now. And so I have to do my own little forgiveness on that. But I definitely figure out like, yeah, we got to do some sort of pep talk or something for people. <laughs> There's the, what's that? Um, it's a TikTok and it's like everybody's dad. And it's this guy who is a younger black guy and he speaks to you and the shot is like a point of view. So he's like looking into the camera and he's like, you can do it. Don't worry. So tell me about your day. And he's doing stuff like that. Everyone was like, well, like he's everybody's dad. (laughs) Um, Maybe you should think about doing a few of those. Yeah, maybe on it. I want to just go over to social media and one of my favorite topics, the source of truth. And TikTok, of course. Uh, yeah i mean lauren keeps trying to get me onto tiktok and she keeps sending me tiktok videos of things and it is in part an age gap between us that i generally have no idea what she's talking about but when you were talking about people getting their news from youtube and we were talking the other day about people saying that some gen z some gen z talking about how they get a lot of their news from tiktok and i was like well, how do you if that's your only source there's like your algorithms are playing on you and algorithms are embedded with inequality because they're built by people Mm -hmm. like this prejudice that sits within them so that sent me into a whole spiral but my other spiral is around disinformation and how you combat disinformation and my favorite freak out is the research around amplifying disinformation the more you try to combat disinformation and so that 
is one of the things that keeps me up at night. Can you help me? Yes, I sleep like a baby because, oh, that's not true. I feel like babies actually don't sleep that well. I sleep like a person who sleeps eight hours a night as often as possible. Occasionally not, but you know, and a lot of that is just because I spend so much time looking at this, like the opposite view that I'm just like, oh, okay, there's things we can do. I'm always looking for like, where's the things we can do? First, I feel like just quick you know, getting on the same page with terms. So if we think about what a lot of researchers are now calling information disorder, I'd like to think of it as like a polluted information environment, right? We're all sharing this information environment. And there are certain people who are intentionally polluting that environment to confuse people, to pit people against each other, to overwhelm and exhaust people. So if we think about the three overarching categories of information disorder, there's misinformation. So stuff people are sharing that they may not know is not true. All of us have fallen prey to that at some point. There's disinformation. So people intentionally spreading false narratives in order to confuse people, pit them against each other. And then there's what's called malinformation, which is true information that has been used for nefarious purposes. So that's think about things like doxing, revenge porn, taking a piece of information from one text and then dropping it in another time and place where it's not appropriate in order to expose people to harm or just confuse and intimidate people, whatever the particular goals in the moment. So there's those three things that are going on and then everything's kind of a flavor of that. The thing that again helps me sleep at night and that helps me train people with a smile every day on these otherwise really ugly topics is the fact that Bad actors are outnumbered. Go back to that abundance mindset. Bad actors are outnumbered. That's why they've got to trick the rest of us into doing their dirty work for them. And so when we remember, all right, there's more of us than there are of them. And if we actually use the power of our numbers and the fact that people want the good thing. If we're given a choice between like, the world is terrible, here's a whole platter of lies that are going to give you false scapegoats in order to assuage your frustration over the horrible state of the world. Or if you're just like, hey, we are people who are trying to solve problems. And here are things you can do to solve the problems as opposed to just temporarily distracting yourself from the problems. If we're consistently offering people that choice, they're going to take it. And so the better we get at communicating, the better we get at sharing the things to do, right? Going back to our storytelling conversation, the more we show people like, hey, this bad thing happened, but now this person is thriving. And here's how we can help people thrive on a systemic level. The more we get in that habit, then the less fertile the public mind becomes to this bad information, right? People are looking for these narratives or they're susceptible to the false narratives or the inappropriately weaponized true ones because they've not been given an alternative to that. And so the more we can focus on not, again, whack-a-mole, every single time somebody lies, I have to go put out the lie fire. I'm going to, you know, if you just replace it with truth, if you just replace it with a more compelling vision of what could be going on, over time, that thing is not going to be satisfying. The other thing is the power of real world impact because what they're doing is rooted in lies for the most part. This is why you see, for example, even though there's been all these myths about white supremacy or things like that, look at who is the angriest in US society right now. Who's the ones who are increasing in suicide rates, increasing in you know mass violence rates. It is the people at the top of the hierarchy. And so this system we're working for anybody we would not see that pattern. So the more we help people recognize that there's a better way to do this for everybody. It's not about like, we're gonna get special rights over here or any of that kind of stuff, but that there's a better thing to do for everybody. Then what the bad actors are doing becomes less and less powerful. The other thing that is really important to me and why I focus so much on storytelling is because as a teacher at heart, I recognize that story is how we make sense of the world. And part of what we are consistently doing wrong 
and are only now starting to get our minds around as we get better at storytelling, as we get better at messaging, is that we tell incomplete stories. We speak in the passive voice all the time. Jobs moved overseas. Really? How did that happen? Did jobs pack their bags? Did they get visas? Like, how did that happen? No, people made a decision that they could exploit, you know, labor overseas in a way that they can't in this country. And so they made a choice to offshore their productions. When we talk about things as though there's like kind of, you know, inequality just happening, right? You know, disparities, different groups of people are just, you know, the wage gap is increasing. Really? All on its own? Nobody's paying anybody? When we talk like that, we leave all these wide open gaps for bad actors to exploit because they may not be telling the truth, but they're telling a complete story. And our brains not actually truth discerning organs. They look for think patterns that make sense. And so if you're telling something, if our mind recognizes the pattern of beginning, middle, end dynamic, they recognize the five W's, who, what, where, why. If you're telling a false story, even if you're just telling a story, that is actually going to stick in people's minds more than what's true. And so when we try to do a narrative battle with fact sheets, with spreadsheets, with data points, and we completely take people, all the elements of story out of that communication, we're setting ourselves up for the bad actors, the disinformers, all the people trying to mislead people. We're just handing the public over to them because left big gaps in people's understanding of the world that bad actors are like, oh, you know why that thing is doesn't work or there's this disparity? Because immigrants are taking your jobs, right? They're waiting for those little gaps and those missteps to just be able to speak lies into or inappropriately drop the truth in. And we've got to get better at telling the kinds of stories and actually speaking over and over again, rehearsing for people the world we want to live in because they're going to be hungry for some kind of sense-making kind of thing. Because again, our brains are not actually being able to like independently on their own come up with what is truth. We ascertain truth based on who we trust, the types of research we trust, things like that, and then also seeing it actually play in our lives. But so if we actually help people understand how things got to be the way they are, what their role is in changing it, then we can actually start to neutralize what the bad actors are doing. People constantly, you want to replace repeat. If somebody comes at you with a lie, you don't say, wait a minute, that lie is not true because now you've repeated the lie. You instead replace it with something you want to be thinking about. Again, all of this is moment to moment. If every moment you're choosing, oh, wait, I'm going to be disciplined enough to replace the thing that they're talking about. And then they come back at me with something else and I'm going to replace the thing they're talking about. Over time, either they're going to stop coming to me with hallelujah, or they're going to start to think about this in a different way because they're actually getting opportunities to build a new neural pathway. They're starting to get opportunities to build new associations and new senses of possibility. So what you're saying is I have to stop going up to people and calling them dum-dums. <laughs> yes, unfortunately. I feel like for me, I'm just realizing I couldn't be keyboard Kermit all the time and like telling everybody they're wrong and here's all my screenshots proving why, because that was like a real breakdown for me. <laughs> I'm always the mean one is like, you got to get rid of your fact sheets. And I'm like, I know, baby, I know. I I once upon a time loved to argue with people on the internet until I realized I wasted my time and energy. It's so tempting to do so, to argue with people on the internet. And also useful to know that you could be repeating the lie, which actually helps them, because that's also really tempting to do, to say, no, actually, what you just said is is not true. Exactly. No, the constant negation. The thing is, like, it's the don't think of an elephant warning. And we all read that, what, 20, 50, every years ago it came out, but everybody's still doing it. So just remembering that the reason you think of an elephant when someone's don't think of an elephant is because you can't picture don't. Your brain can picture 
the elephant. And so anytime you're saying it, even if you're just saying it to say, this is wrong, again, you want to think about, okay, if I want someone to not think of an elephant, I'm going to say, hey, think of a kitten, think of a bunny. Replace, don't repeat. I feel like I'm going to test this out because I've had a real issue with the QAnon situation for years now. And this idea of this deep devotion and belief no matter what. One, I'm a little bit envious because I wish that I could just accept the things that people tell me, but I can't. I'm always just like, but why? But why? But why? Drives Lauren crazy. She hates it when I do it. But this this idea of replacing it with a different narrative, replacing it with a different story, feels more proactive than what I do, which is generally to flip them off as right. I'm passing yeah, by yeah, on and my bike. The other thing we want to think about in the whole dynamic is we're not just talking and telling stories just to be doing that. We're doing that in relationship with each other, whether that's our personal relationships, our collective societal relationships, and everything in between. And so part of what bad actors are after, it's not necessarily our understanding so much as our trust the trust people have within each other, because we can't possibly know everything. The entire store of human knowledge is doubling, tripling, quintupling every day. And so that's an exaggeration of the act. Don't hold me to those statistics. Yeah. But so like, fake but news, you, fake news. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, there's too much information for everybody to know everything. Knowing everything was never possible. It is certainly not possible now. And so the way we really come to know things is that we trust the people who are telling us stuff that's not in our expertise. I did go to medical school. So if my doctor tells me something because I've taken the time to find a doctor I trust and you know, feel comfortable with. I take her word for it when she's telling me medical things, right? And so that is how we actually come to understand or cobble together a sense of truth through our relationship. So the other thing that bad actors really want us to do is they want us to get real obnoxious with the people who believe the lies. They want us to tell everybody off. They want us to be the person at Thanksgiving. They want us to be the one. Hey, hey, like, this feels pointed <laughs> now. This feels pointed. Oh, I know. I could, yeah, that's the thing. I made y'all laugh for like an hour straight so that I could come with my little <laughs> pokers. <laughs> I got to drag everybody at least a little bit or else we'll never get better. But that's the thing is that they want us to be obnoxious because then it doesn't matter how much truth you tell them. So the other counterintuitive thing that we have to do sometimes is to prioritize empathy ahead of truth. People will believe our truth when they trust us. And so the thing to keep in mind with that is something that I learned a lot as a teacher is, you know, people don't care what you know until they know that you care. Another way to think about that is the strength of my relationships, my ability to actually be a credible person is going to be the thing that allows me to persuade people or at least to diffuse conflict with people. And so the more I can think about if I'm getting into a situation where a person is telling me wild things or they're coming at me with stuff like that, I've got to be able to gracefully exit those conversations. I have to train people on how to do that. You know, that's not my understanding of this issue, but if you're ever open to another viewpoint, let's come back together and talk about it. What's right? that, what's that oh, friend's reference? Is it the hug and roll? <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And so, you know, helping people actually preserve the relationship ahead of like, no, I'm going to beat you with my fact hammer every time I see you, QAnon family member. That does not work. Have your battle buddy or somebody that you can text and be like, oh, they're doing it again. Or, you know, get to a point where you're like, oh, I just going to breathe through it and then keep going. Right. But getting in the practice of actually preserving the relationship, of showing that you care about a person, of reminding them that you're all on the same team in whatever way. And then, when they're saying things that are outrageous, when they're getting to the point where you're like, I'm about to lose this. Before you get to that point where you're going to lose it, you're going to set a boundary so that you can preserve the relationship so that if and when that person starts to, because the other thing too, is that 
life is going to disprove that person much more effectively than you can. Thinking about watching the hearings for the January 6th insurrection that happened here in the States, some of the people, you know, they stormed the Capitol and now they're testifying against Trump and all the people who incited this. They didn't come to those new understandings because somebody in their Facebook comments was arguing with them. Life confronted them with the reality. And hopefully, if, you know, there was somebody in their life who was that person who's like, I don't agree with anything you're posting. I don't agree with anything you're saying, but you're still my brother, my cousin, my coworker, my whatever. Hopefully there's somebody in their life who's going to be able to, when they realize that, when life checks them in a way that our arguments cannot, then they can come back to be like, oh, that's right. I do have that one friend who kind of dismisses like the liberal whatever, but she's really nice to me. And I think she actually knows about this. Then they're going to come talk to you. They're going to ask you questions. They're going to say, actually, where can I read more about this? I've seen that happen dozens of times in my own life where people who were hardened in their position and I was like, you know what? All right, I'm just going to back off of this. I'm going to keep posting my things on my own channels and showing where I stand on the thing so people know where I'm coming from. But I'm going to keep being a positive person. I'm going to keep being you know, a friendly presence in their life. Then when they're like, oh, now all the things are going on and there's protests and things like that. And I feel like I don't understand what's going on. I think I can talk to Sabrina about it because she's been talking about this for years. And so that's actually how we start to be in the process of persuasion with people. That's a way more effective path. It takes longer. It may not be immediately as emotionally satisfying to not just beat them over the head with a back hammer because Lord, I wish I could. But just a real hammer sometimes. It off in the long run. So in social movement theory, there's a concept around this, which is cognitive opening. And that's the point at which your own individual beliefs become sort of shaken. And so you become more willing to hear other ideas, other worldviews as a kind of yeah. a moment where something shifts for you and you become more available mm-hmm. to new things. So exactly. just a little shout out to my PhD supervisor. I am working on it. That was from my thesis. So I can verify. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious how this all plays in a much more complex setting. So, you know, conflict development settings that we work in. And I'm thinking specifically of the Ukraine-Russia war, the disinformation and misinformation that's everywhere and people sharing pictures of different conflicts saying it's it's this war and how do you even go through that to find truth? And, and something I don't know if you saw recently, but Amnesty International shared a report calling attention to Ukraine military and that they were operating in civilian areas. And that report was then used as propaganda in Russia and caused uproar in Ukraine and they had to verify it. It's incredibly complex. I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts. One, the things that we practice in the micro that actually set us up to be able to do them in the macro. All of these systems, all of these organizations, all of these societies, their constituent parts are still people and it's still going to be in relationships, except now it might be the relationship between this organization and that organization or this leader, that leader. And so part of helping people wade through all this, one, I think is for all of us to start to think about how can we be better digital citizens when we see conflict images and things like that, be like, wait a minute. I'm too far from this to even be able to verify if that's true. So I'm not going to share it. Also helping ourselves realize like, I don't need to see, especially if I'm not in the conflict area, I don't need to see images of it. I don't need to share images of it in order to be helpful. And actually, I can be helping to confuse people if I am actually doing that. So when there's conflicts going on, I'm going to share ways people can help if I'm farther from it. And then as we think about what do we do supporting the people in those situations, is again, making sure that we're not cluttering up the information environment with junk. We're not doing our weird shares because like, 
this makes it look like I'm concerned. If we stop doing that, they can actually help figure out what's going on in real time. Then also supporting people to, and, and, and obviously this bigger thing that has to do with diplomacy, all this other kind of stuff. But the more we can help people kind of zoom back out to the bigger picture in the malinformation situation you just described, where they're like, this is a true thing, like there were human rights abuses, et cetera, but they're propping this up in order to further this other narrative that's nefarious. If we keep calling people back to freedom for justice, making sure that people see the bigger picture is that nobody has to be suffering like this. And let's oppose in generative, righteous ways, the people who are doing these bad things. That means taking responsibility on our own end. If there's stuff on our own side of the street that we need to clean up, let's clean it. And then also supporting people to see big picture, right? Zoom back out. They want you to get lost in these little complexities because the more you get lost trying to figure out all these stuff that you may or may not have any control over, then you're confusing yourself, getting overwhelmed and exhausted. So we want to keep pulling people back out to the bigger picture where they can see, oh, wait a minute, that's right. The bigger picture is that we could have freedom for everybody. And here are paths towards that. So again, kind of helping to clean up the information environment by pulling people back out of the polluted spaces and then helping them get clear. I feel like I've got a few things I need to work on personally. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, me too. I'm so guilty of sharing things on social media to show that I care. Yeah, Lauren does spam me quite a bit. (laughs) (laughs) I want to spend a bit of time if you're okay we recognize we're just going a, a little bit over we're talking about really great aspirational stuff we're zooming in and out between the things that we can do on an individual level and how they can replay or be amplified in a positive way on the kind of bigger macro piece so i'm just curious about going beyond the narrative when you're thinking about the work that you do around helping to embed the principles of values driven in narrative building. Talk to me a little bit about that and then talk to me about some of the steps that go past that. Because for me, again, I'll let my sort of naughty pessimist come out a little bit. I'm often hearing great statements reading about great things that people are doing sounds so fantastic and wonderful then when you dig into it you see that they're replaying systems of oppression you see that it's actually quite dark and catfishing everybody (laughs) yeah exactly yep listen to our episode on catfishing um so i'm just curious about what does it look like for you and your work around the values driven narrative building and then what does that look like when you leave right so for me when i think about values driven narrative building it's really about making sure that we're creating stories that we're helping people understand what's going on in ways that actually set them up to do better things. So the point, again, we're not just talking to talk. Part of the work that we're doing, especially when I'm thinking about what I'm doing with organizations and folks is that, you know, again, people have what they need, right? They have the knowledge, they have the research, they have all that stuff in place. A lot of times what they don't have is a coherent narrative about how things actually work together. And so because they have all these disjointed facts and all the stuff that is intentionally being coming at them to overwhelm them, they can't get their minds straight about like, okay, so how does this practically work out? So that's where you get people who are like, you know, as my pastor would say, have more degrees than a thermometer and yet somehow feel like everything is hopeless and I need to learn more information. Or it's like, no, you need to make better use of what you have. And so part of getting our story straight is not necessarily just about an external comms position. It's about fixing what's going on in your head so that you can actually see the practical steps you can take moment by moment to play this out. This is why I feel like it's so important to actually have a working story of self, story of us, story of now, because, shout out to Marshall Gans, that's not me, because if we can wrap our minds around, okay, how do we get here? 
What can we do about it? Where are we trying to go? If we can actually figure that out, then the steps we actually want to take to that become a lot clearer. I think a lot of times the mistake organizations make is that they think you have communications or a lot of times people will hire me for communications. They don't realize that they actually hired an organizer and that I'm going to like literally get in there and rejigger their minds. Because if you're not telling a coherent story, it's because you don't get it yet yourself. People have all these facts, but they're like, I have a puzzle. And so what I'm helping people do is like, here's how you fit the pieces together so that you can actually show people, this is the picture I want you to feel. And a lot of times what we do is we're like, look, look at this one weird shaped puzzle piece. That's what you're doing to people when you just pull out a random fact and say, this is why you should do something. They're like, I don't, what, what is that squiggle? Like, I don't, I don't care about that. And so if we actually get our stories straight in our minds first, and then as we're talking, we help other people get the story straight in their minds, then what we need to do actually becomes a lot clearer. And and so something that I train people to do, if you have no time, no money or whatever else to hire me for your anti-disinformation efforts, I'm going to give you the nitty gritty right here. I have three A's that I'm like known for now. <laughs> if you're consistently speaking, communicating with people according to these three A's that are accurate, aspirational, and actionable, then you're probably not doing all of the other things that are going to trick you into amplifying this and disinformation. And you're also helping them wrap their mind around what is the practical implication of the thing you're talking about. So we're accurate, right? It's truth as validated by lived experience as well as research, rigorous research, I will add. If we're talking about aspirational, this is attractive potential future that's actually worth investing some time, energy, money, whatever it is to work towards. But then actionable, you know, give me this aspirational vision, but what's the practical next step I can take in order to get closer to that vision? If we're constantly hitting those three A's, then not only are our communications going to be working better, but our actions are going to be flowing better. The reason it's such a problem when people are talking badly about issues, the way we just trip over our words so much, is that it actually reveals that there's a bigger problem going on mentally. And it reveals the bigger problem going on in our hearts, that we maybe don't believe that change is possible, that we maybe don't understand how we got to be in this place in the first place, or haven't stopped to think about it in a practical way. And so then we start kind of doing all this weird stuff on top of it. And then when our random isolated puzzle pieces are not changing anybody's mental images, we get mad and then we start trying to manipulate them. Like, oh, you don't care about the fly-ridden children? Well, here's why you should care, you know? And so we start doing all this other stuff because we're compensating for the fact that we have not actually given people a coherent narrative about how things got to be the way they are and what they can do about it. If we constantly circle back to that, if we actually understand it ourselves, then we can actually help people. All right, so if I want to live in a world where people are actually spreading the truth online instead of not, I'm going to do these things, right? I'm going to set some limits. I'm going to set some boundaries. I'm going to set, you know, and I'm going to speak to people when I'm communicating in accurate, aspirational, actionable ways. I'm not going to just share things just so everybody can be in my own doom scroll pity party. I RSVP no to every doom scroll pity party. That's why I have the smile on my face and I sleep at night, right? Instead of doing that, I'm going to hit those three A's when I communicate so that I'm helping to both model what I want to see. And I'm also not just doing it to myself. We just continually, continually, continually come back to those things. And the more you do it over time, the easier it gets, the more other people get used to it. We're all training each other. It's not just the algorithms kind of imposing stuff on us. We're teaching the algorithm what to continually show us by what we share, by what we clicked on. And so the more we make better decisions, again, moment to moment, then we are actually living out the thing we want to see, as opposed to thinking we've got to convince everybody of all the facts and then 
someday they're going to get it together and make better policy and we'll all have freedom. I think that's really helpful as well, just because I'm reflecting about some of the times when we've been working with clients. For example, we've tried to move into that actionable place. And so I'll say something like, okay, so what's the first step you're going to take tomorrow? What's the first thing you're going to do? And it's the part that inevitably we have to spend the longest on because the first thing is always for some reason really elusive. And so perhaps it's about the story that's being told and built in the run up to that that's making it more challenging to get to that actionable piece as something that's not quite clicking. And, and I'm reflecting it. Yeah, actually, probably. Well, not probably. Actually, we are throwing puzzle pieces at people's faces, Lauren. So <laughs> we need to cut that out. We are. And so I think that there is something about how that story is resonating for people and whether or not that first step seems, you know, we do it to try to make that first change more achievable. But it's usually something like send email. I'm like, okay, it's a very legitimate first thing you need to do. Let's start there. I think that that's a really useful point for us to reflect on and how we're thinking about things in our own work when we're working with other people. It's the actionable bit that seems sticky. And I think it's because the two other A's before that maybe aren't quite in place. Yeah. Yeah. I'm very curious what the conversation on bringing the jigsaws together will tear would look like. And there's just so much I'm taking away from this conversation in general. How much more attuned I need to be as a digital citizen. And I guess how much more intentional I need to be with how I use social media, how I showcase myself and what that means for what shows up for me. And sometimes someone like you who has told me that very concretely and has made it seem all the more tangible and doable. It's not something you talk about very often at work or with friends or how you use these things better. And then something you mentioned earlier about just the intention of being an activist in all parts of your life when I'm in a shop or a restaurant or wherever what does liberation look like for me people around me how and what am I choosing in that moment <laughs> I know that people who are listening to this in the future are really enjoying this conversation <laughs> and have enjoyed it and we have really gotten a lot out of it I think maybe we just need to do a session with you Lauren and I frequently try to do uh, team building things and strategy sessions sometimes she'll surprise me with but I think it'd be great for us to spend some some time with you and do one of your trainings because I think we'd get, yeah, love to. get, get <laughs> a lot from it yeah so just a big thank you from me I have really loved this. I think this is probably the longest we've spoken to anyone. So. Yes, honestly, so rich. I'm going to have to listen to this again on repeat. So if you can just tell us where people can find you, give your little rundown, because I think everybody's going to want to know where they can get in touch with you, where they can hear more, read more. And obviously, we're going to put all the links into the show notes. We'll leave the last word to you. Uh, sure. Thank you. And thank you so much for having me. This has been an absolute pleasure. So I can be found-ish. I am at Real Savvy Joy on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. I say ish because right now I feel like social media platforms more <laughs> Definitely using those as more kind of a digital bulletin board right now, just because I've been spending so much time, thankfully, getting to be in community with people. But I do post, you can find basically wherever you need to find me on those sites. I have a link tree, all the places you can get in touch with me on there. But then also on my website, so if you go to sabrinajoystevens.com slash learn, that's where you can find all of my current training offerings. You can also always hit me up for like a custom thing. I'm, I'm always down to ideate with people and figure out a way to kind of meet their particular needs. And then my services page is just sabrinajoystevens.com slash services. Folks can find me on any of those spots. I'm always excited to help good people try to spread good things. <laughs> 
that's your t-shirt. <laughs> <There we go. laughs> right. I want the other one too. Okay, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna do both. Maybe front and back. We can situation. do one side and the yeah, other. So exactly. That way, if I'm feeling like more like shipboard one day, yeah. do that one, and then like good people, good stuff another day. Exactly. All right, we're we're on it. You get something that's like reversible, maybe. Right. Well, I'm Tia. I'm Lauren, and I'm Sabrina, and this has been the journey to transformation. Thank you so much, Sabrina. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Journey to Transformation. Leave us a five-star rating and a written review wherever you're listening to this podcast. Journey to Transformation is written and edited by us, Tia Rogers and Lauren Burrows. Our music comes from Praz Canal.